Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Okay, we know who TSOL are. Oh, yeah. We know. Yeah, we yeah. know. We're, we're well aware of TSOL. And, and sorry for calling it TSOL. And sorry <laughs> for not knowing that it's TSOL. I've never spoken to anyone else about TSOL. Okay, so we got a few messages. <laughs> and uh, which is, I mean, well, we get a lot of messages. Uh, no dogs in space at gmail.com. Thank yeah. you so much for the very nice messages. Thank by you the way. very much. We yes. very much appreciate it. But for some reason, there's all these nice messages. And then there's just like maybe a couple people will be like, oh, by the way, it's True Sons of Liberty. And it's just a couple people and being very nice about it. But oh no. Oh no. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough for us to think about it for days. <laughs> We know it's True Sons of Liberty. We know. We know. But thank you for letting... We did ask if it's T-S-O-L or T-S-O-L. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we did ask. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And we are on to Dead Kennedys Part 5. God damn it. We're here. We're yes. here at the end. We're here. Finally. It's been such a fun series. Uh, there's been so much more information, so much more to this story than we originally thought that there was. We thought this was going to be a three-part series. Uh, it ended up being five just because the Dead Kennedys ended up being a central, not a, even a central part, but they ended up being peripherally involved in... Such and huge parts of American history, huge parts of 20th century history. Yes, exactly. The Forrest Gump of bands. It's like <laughs> every stop along the way from the 70s to the 80s. Uh, Dead Kennedys were somehow involved in. Somehow. Yes. But they were there. So when we last left the Dead Kennedys, Ronald Reagan had just won re-election and the culture wars of the 80s were well underway, as was evidenced by the riots in both San Francisco and Dallas during the political conventions of 1984. The punks were becoming the boogeymen of American culture to the white middle class, and the Dead Kennedys unwittingly made themselves the main ghouls with the release of their third album, Frankenchrist. <laughs> Sorry, but you no longer need me. 
or wanting, or even cared about here. Machines can do a better job than you, and this is what you get for asking questions. The unions agree sacrifices must be made. Computers never go on strike. To save the working man, you gotta put him out the pasture. Looks like you have to let you go. Doesn't it feel fulfilling to know that we, the human being, are now obsolete? And there's nothing in hell will let you kill out of super good food. Like a piece of trash. It's catchy. It is. It's the evils of automation. And soup. <laughs> so evil. <laughs> yeah, so Frankenchrist, uh, it was recorded and then released in October 1985 by Alternative Tentacles. And this time, Jello Biafra got, uh, for the first time, producing credit as well as mixing credit with John Cuniberti, you know, who also engineered the record that we talked about in, la- in the last episode. Mm-hmm. And under the list of credits on the album, listed spiritual guidance was Norm. Oh, Norm the cat. Norm the cat. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. You know, you really realize doing all these just how like cute punks are. Yeah. It's, just, <laughs> it's like we're just being fun with this. We're just being kind of cute. You know. Oh, never get between a punk and their cat. <laughs> We all know this. We all know this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all know the picture of Glenn Danzig going and buying massive amounts of kitty litter. They fucking, they love the cats. <laughs> so, again, they were at the fancy, the very fancy studios, right? And that's w- there where John Cuniberti showed them all about, like, the fun knobs and levers that the big studio has to offer. Look at that, guys. Do you want to press that button? They're like, whoa, <laughs> what does this do? Just press it. Ah. <laughs> That's the reverb button. Can we use it on every song? We're going to make it a symphony of reverb. (laughs) It is a very reverb heavy album. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. And even though East Bay Ray, you know, the Dead Kennedys guitarist, he wasn't producing this time around. He did put in a lot of his uh, psychedelic uh, guitar sounds to this album, Mm -hmm. as well as synthesizer albums, because it's the 80s and that's how it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's a law. Nobody was exempt from synthesizers in the 80s. But, you know, but the, the Dead Kennedys had also, you know, they had been working with the Screamers in the past, and you know, they'd been doing synthesizers since what seventy nine when yeah. the Screamers were around. Yeah, so the, but they did it in a they did it in a pretty sweet way. They knew <laughs> how to do it. It wasn't like History of the World Part One with the Damned, where it's like, I know what you guys are up to here. <laughs> <laughs> now with this album, the Dead Kennedys evolved from what their fans expected and stretched out with longer songs, going with tracks that were four, five, or even six minutes in length, which was almost unheard of in the time of two-minute hardcore. And out of all their albums, this one is arguably the darkest, almost dour at times, truly reflecting the overall disgust people like Jello had toward the country for re-electing Ronald Reagan in the second largest landslide of the century. However, the album is not Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. Instead, Frankenchrist looks more at the whys of Reagan's America, exploring the root causes of the slow rot pervading this country. With synthesizers. (laughs) For example, in the song A Growing Boy Needs His Lunch, Biafra plays with the concept that America's devotion to religion has nothing to do with belief itself, but is rather misplaced admiration, where Jesus can easily be swapped out with Elvis.
Mighty throne that we wear across our necks today. Hail Elvis! Hail Elvis! As he always doth proclaim, if it's yellow, <laughs> let it mellow. If it's, if it's brown, brown flush it down. Flush it down! Amen. <laughs> that would have been interesting. One day, one yeah, day, yeah. one day that would be. I don't know. You know what's funny about that is that uh, way back in the '80s, like Elvis will, still was kind of a deity. In like 1977, now in like 2020, like everyone knows who Elvis is, but it is it, it he isn't deified quite as he was back then. I would argue John Lennon won the deification uh, battle between no. Elvis and uh, John. Uh, out there of the must, two of them, yes, there was a battle. <laughs> you see, there was a battle. There was quite possibly a spiritual battle behind the scenes on some other plane of dimension that we don't know about, and where dead rock stars go after they die, and then they battle for supremacy to see which <laughs> one gets the most adoration. We missed it. <laughs> but there's still plenty of good old Dead Kennedys worry warding about the future in this album. And as it sometimes went with these types of songs, Jello's concerns absolutely came to pass. I mean, Jerry Brown, no, he never became a Zen fascist dictator. But other things, ooh, he was spot on. In the song This Could Be Anywhere, the band addresses the problems behind suburban sprawl and homogenization. And as anyone who spent time driving around America in the last 20 years can attest, every fucking place does indeed now look the same. There's a reverb. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I caught it too. <laughs> I mean, this it's, it is uh, by far the cleanest Dead Kennedys album. You know, all yeah. the re- the other two, like there's there's some blown out parts. There's some crackliness to it, and it's they're kind of tinny at times. You know, there's a thinness, but this one's full. It's a full big boy album. <laughs> they did go full out on production here. Yeah. I mean, they, they had the money. that they, they wanted to sound different from any punk record that was coming out that time. Yeah. And they did. They it, managed to do that. They absolutely managed to do that, and I highly respect that. But it wasn't just Jello giving it his all on this one. East Bay Ray's guitar on Chicken Farm is among the best licks he ever wrote, hearkening back to the almost romantic feeling of Moon Over Marin. Except, you know. Chickens. It's a chicken farm. <laughs> <laughs> about civilian casualties and war, which isn't chickens, you know. But it's so fun to listen to. <laughs> so. And that's the point of the dead Kennedys, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, you had me feeling good? Oh, great. What else is next? Oh, God. <laughs> you know, Agent Orange was pretty bad. <laughs> Just sneak it in there. Just sneak it into fucking a song that you know you think is about a chicken farm. And, and that's the thing about this album. Is this album's a, it's a grower. Uh, it's one that really grows on you. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's one that it it, it really is growing because you know Franken Christ was uh, always my third favorite Dead Kennedys album behind Fresh Fruit and Plastic Surgery Disasters. But now it's starting to edge up back yeah, to the, right? it's starting to edge up to the second spot just because we listen to it so obsessively and prep for this episode uh like i feel like i, I get it now like if i get, like, <laughs> feel like I'm, I'm like into it like i was like oh yeah yeah i get what i get what you mean and, and that's the thing about frank and christ is that a lot of times the music the actual songs on the record uh the songs have gotten overshadowed by all of the controversy surrounding the record itself oh yeah <laughs> that's right which is what we're about to get into Now, once again, the Dead Kennedys courted controversy with the album cover, which at first glance was a perfectly innocent image of a bunch of Shriners on parade. You know, the Shriners, little guys in the cars and the hats, but the still very much alive Shriners featured in that image being on the cover of a punk album called 
Frankenchrist was a grave offense. <laughs> yeah, well, so the Shriners are on parade. Sure, I mean, it's goofy, but it's fun. But the Shriners on the cover did not appreciate it at all. <laughs> they didn't want to be on the cover of a punk record. They were just driving their little cars, having a good Saturday. <laughs> well, they were on parade. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what the Shriners would do all the time, you know, because they're a fraternal organization. They're just a group of guys who like to wear fez hats and, yeah. and, and help out in charities and stuff. It's, yeah, of course. It's like the, uh, what is it, the Order of the Water Buffalo from the Flintstones, yeah. but with Masonic rituals. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and hopefully they allow more than uh, white cavemen in. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> so this photo, it was printed in Newsweek 1976. And so the Dead Kennedys paid uh, $175 for the rights of this photo from Newsweek. So it was all legit. Pretty good deal. But the Shriners sued for $45 million. <laughs> $45 million? Yes. They sued Dead Kennedys, Newsweek, and two retailers. <laughs> they said uh, uh, it was a misappropriation of name and or likeness and, and false light. Well, what was $45 mil- What was worth $45 million? Uh, their, their personal loss of esteem. Personal loss of esteem. They put their own esteem at $45 million? Yes. <laughs> some pretty high fucking esteem for themselves well i'd put my esteem maybe 40 bucks <laughs> well you can go up a little higher okay 75 okay there you go that's a good deal but the shredders they ended up not getting anything but a bunch of legal fees after a few years thanks to newsweek's lawyers yeah who just gave them the runaround and being like i don't know what we can tell you guys i mean you guys were on parade yeah. <laughs> you're not embarrassed about that you just didn't want to be on this cover. Yeah, and Newsweek. Yeah, and Newsweek has a gigantic army of lawyers that are never going to give up. It's a gigantic corporation. Um, but the Dead Kennedys were very lucky in that one that Newsweek provided the lawyers. Next time, they're not quite so lucky. <laughs> and the thing about Frankenchrist is that it is, at the end of the day, a concept album about how people in the Reagan era tended to fuck each other over every single day in the ugliest ways possible, all in the name of the kind of personal freedom that abdicates responsibility for your fellow man. And thank Christ we don't act like that anymore. Oh, well. <laughs> well, you know, we've gotten better at doing that, actually. So if we you really think about it, it we're, we've actually much more efficient at fucking each other over. It's almost like we don't know we're doing it. But this unifying idea didn't come to Jello until most of the album was already recorded. And from what Jello said, the final concept was inspired by a painting done by Swiss artist H.R. Giger. Yeah, H.R. Giger. Well, he, he, he was from Switzerland. He started showing his artwork in the 60s. And at first he started like normal things like ink drawings and oil paintings and stuff. But then he got into airbrush paint and then developed his own unique style of freehand painting by 1972. Now, out, out of all of his artworks, he was very well known for his like, you know, biomechanical dreamscapes. Like, you know, his images of humans and machines connected together yeah. in a surreal way. It's sick it's fucking great yeah i mean his artwork has already been on a, like a bunch of album covers like uh emerson lake and palmer for brain salad surgery mm -hmm. and debbie harry's uh, solo record remember cuckoo in 1981 because that's that's the only way you could say cuckoo yeah and... I, I yeah cuckoo uh, uh, oh, no <laughs> no it's a great cover it's it's deb just debbie harry's face with these gigantic pins through her cheeks. It's yeah, fucking gnarly. It's like metal skewers going through her face. And she even had problems with the cover because some stores like refused to stock her record because of the cover. And she's like, w why? I mean, there's no gore in it. It's just metal skewers going through her face. Like, it's beautiful. Like, that's my face. You don't think I'm beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's unsettling. Yeah, it, it makes you feel. That's the thing about H.R. Giger. H.R. Giger makes you feel weird. 
that that's <laughs> that is all of his music or all of his music all of his art is made to make you feel weird and to make you and in some cases make you feel terrified exactly that's what he would say he's like i try to paint the horrifying stuff of reality but actually it's not as horrifying as reality uh, you gotta say it right though I tried to paint some horrifying <laughs> things that are in our reality but really there's nothing more horrifying than reality itself no <laughs> <laughs> there's many things I could I could go on and on I'm telling you but you want to just talk about the penis monster and that's fine yes the penis monster <laughs> that is like H.R. Giger actually won an Oscar for well, it's not Penis Monster. It's, <laughs> it's a xenomorph alien from the 1979 movie Alien. H.R. Giger created the xenomorph. He created quite possibly the most terrifying movie monster of all time. The be- My favorite movie monster. I think it's the most terrifying movie monster yeah, oh, ever. Yes. My fucking childhood nightmares definitely attested that it was the most terrifying movie <laughs> monster in existence. It was the only mo- horror movie that ever gave me nightmares. Wow. It was Alien. Yeah, yeah it is. Oh, man, the xenomorph. <laughs> The thing about the xenomorph, you wouldn't necessarily tell first time looking at it, but what H.R. Giger designed the xenomorph to subconsciously remind you of uh-huh. is a big cock. Penis head. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. This, it's like the big, you just put the big penis on the head and you make the penis the head and you have somebody chasing him around this fucking space station going rah, rah, rah. <laughs> and the problem is that what you're really afraid of is being fucked by big black cock. And that is what we should be addressing. We should be facing this fear. And then they gave him a fucking Oscar. Oh. Right? <laughs> because it's the coolest. It's the fucking coolest. H.R. Uh, Giger... He loves using penises in his work. It's like that. It's much of what we have in society comes down to how afraid we are of being fucked. Yes, the concept first came to me when I was a young man of 14 years of age, sitting in math class. <laughs> <laughs> when the professor did not react favorably to my drawing during the lesson, I simply explained that it was a metaphor for how modern society exploits and does away with the expendables. Wait, so he's sitting in class at 14 years old drawing, drawing. dicks? <laughs> yes, and it reads on top of it, Professor Eats Shit. <laughs> I don't create nightmares. I just paint them. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making that up. <laughs> that's Giger. <laughs> and you know, Giger, he's all about using penises in his work. That That's one of his, that is not the only thing that he uses. You know, he does these, you know, beautiful biomechanical landscapes, as you said. But, you know, while the xenomorph head is a little more subtle when it comes to symbolism, I didn't really think of, like, I completely think of, like, oh, that's a gigantic cock until someone kind of explained to me, hey, that's a gigantic cock. Giger sometimes used much more graphic imagery in order to get the point across. The best example of this is 1973's Landscape Number 20, a.k.a. Penis Landscape, which is a hideously evocative painting of nine disturbingly large disembodied penises entering nine slightly abnormal disembodied vaginas, and they're all emerging from what seems to be a mountain of filthy black pubic hair. Yeah, and? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's hanging in a museum. Yes, it is. It belongs in a museum. (laughs) It does. It it is a... Could you imagine Indiana Jones (laughs) just running against, like, black market people and just be like, this belongs in a museum? (laughs) It's a a wonderful work of art. I mean, well, I don't know about wonderful, but it is a... uh, It is a work of art. Effective work of art. It is very effective. 
Yeah, so Jello's roommate showed it to him uh, in an art magazine, and Jello was totally blown away by it. He's like, that's it. That's the Reagan era in a nutshell. The vicious circle of greed where one person can exploit someone for their gain and then turn around and look behind them and say, oh my God, I'm getting fucked too. <laughs> and Jello thought that was perfect. That was perfect for Frank and Christ. So he went back in the studio, reworked some of the lyrics that he was going to record for the album because now, like you said, it's a concept album. So they got the music down, uh, they're getting the lyrics down, and now it's visual. Yeah. The perfect trifecta. There's something visual to go along with the audio. And, you know, the, the visual nature of uh, penis landscape and uh, the nature of H.R. Giger's artwork uh, is that it is mechanized. Uh, it is it is streamlined uh, fucking over. You know, it is it really is like a factory. It's a factory of fucking over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, at first, Jello wanted to use the penis landscape as the album cover, but since the piece is stomach-churningly graphic, the band knew that even the most far-out independent record stores would have a hard time stocking that on the shelves. So, Jello came up with the idea to conceal it under dark shrink wrap so the cover could be a surprise <laughs> when the unassuming customer unwrapped the album at home. Seriously, go just Google penis landscape. Just look, very quickly, Google it, take a look at it for yourself because it really helps to have the full visual of what this fucking thing is going for it in this story. But the black shrink wrap, that was too expensive. So the band agreed to print penis landscape as an album insert, sprucing it up with a red, white, and blue board and putting the title Frankenchrist up top. Kind of ruins the piece a little bit. It's a little much. Yeah, and they also put a sticker on the shrink wrap cover of the album that said, like, the inside fold-out to this record cover is a work of art by H.R. Giger that some people may find shocking, repulsive, or offensive. Sometimes life can be that way. Uh. Ah. <laughs> but ain't that the truth? It's offensive. Sometimes life can be that way. And the you can just hear Jello saying it. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the reason why they had to reach this compromise is because no one else wanted it. Nobody. Klaus, <laughs> Ray, D.H. Peligro, they were all just so confused about why Jello wanted this so badly on the cover. They didn't think it really had a lot to do with the message of the record in general. Like D.H. Peligro said in his book, he said that Jello can be pretty controlling and, and you know, he's all about artistic freedom and, and his integrity. But basically, he was making it about himself. He was making it about him. Yes, I am making a statement. I am putting this in here. Look at how brave I am for including this very provocative piece of artwork in our album. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, he's putting everybody's ass on the line with this one. He knows he's walking it. He knows he's walking a tightrope. Well, it's worked before with Dead Kennedys, the actual name of the band. That's like, true. I mean, it has worked every single time until until 1985. <laughs> <laughs> and so Frankenchrist went to the stores with the relatively cute Shriner cover and the incredibly dark penis landscape as the insert. And in December 1985, two months after the album was released the blowback began. That Christmas, a 14-year-old girl in California named Tammy Schwarth gave her 11-year-old brother a copy of Frankenchrist as a gift. And before long, Tammy's mother, Mary, saw the penis landscape poster contained therein. But instead of just throwing away the poster and explaining to the kids why they might be a bit young for that sort of thing, Mary decided to call the California State Attorney's Office to file a complaint. That complaint was then filtered down to the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office, who already had a stack of complaints similar to this one against various other better-known musicians and bands. There was seriously a stack there was on a someone's desk. Yeah. 
full. It was a, a stack of dossiers oh, that they had drawn up on all these bands. We're dealing with Russia. <laughs> I'm sorry, the USSR. You're dealing with. I mean, there's this, so many problems. This is this. I mean, this is the fucking Los Angeles city attorney in 1986. There's a little guy named the Night Stalker walking oh, around. Oh right, yeah, yeah. There's a serial killer named Richard Ramirez who's like killing people, like actively yeah. killing their uh, it, it, voters. Quite, you know, <laughs> potential voters. So why aren't you taking care of that? Quite a bit of bad shit happening in Los Angeles. Angeles at this time that the city attorney could probably focus on a little bit more <laughs> than all of these naughty fucking rock bands. But the problem with going after, say, Judas Priest was that bands like Priest were on major labels with very deep pockets and therefore top-notch attorneys. That made these cases ultimately losers, not worth going after. But Dead Kennedys had no such backing. They were a relatively little-known band, and their label was their own. And if dead Kennedys were prosecuted and convicted, then legal precedent would make future cases against those big bands a lot fucking easier. They were actually quoted as saying, this is a cost-effective way. Yeah. So they, they, they knew. They knew. I mean, it was out in the open. Yeah, it was, oh, it was completely and totally out in the open. Go after the little guy, cut his fucking head off, and it'll give you the weapon that you need to cut the head off of the fucking larger one. Actually, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's like fucking video games. Like, you don't go after the big boss first. Side quest. <laughs> and in addition to all that, the city attorney's office had a young attorney named Michael Gorino looking to make a name for himself. And prosecuting a case that would no doubt make national headlines was a good way to do it. It also didn't hurt that Guarino actually believed that he was doing the right thing. And so, full of ambition and believing that his cause was just, Guarino ordered police to raid Jello Biafra's apartment and the alternative tentacles offices in the pursuit of the first music censorship case in American history. Yeah. April 15th, 1986. Jello is just at home in his bathrobe, half asleep in the upstairs attic of, of his apartment. And all of a sudden he hears loud footsteps just going up the stairs so he just you know goes downstairs in his bathrobe and he just sees nine cops in, nine. His living room, in his living room just searching the whole place just tearing it apart and he just looks at them and is like can i help you <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> and the cops told him like you're under suspicion of distributing harmful matter and he's like Oh, okay. (laughs) Please explain further, sir. So, like, you can just imagine, like, Jello in a bathrobe and socks and, like, maybe hopefully keeping it all tight together (laughs) and just sitting on a recliner while the cops are searching his place, going through every little thing and questioning him for hours. They're like, we're here for that poster from that record that you put out. Where's that Giger man? Is he he here? Is he here? All while looking under the couch cushions and stuff. And he's like, no, I'm not hiding him under my couch. He's in Switzerland. He's an artist in Switzerland. <laughs> and he doesn't give a fuck about any of this. <laughs> so the cops keep going through all his drawers and his clothes and his address book. You know, that thing that we used to have back mm-hmm. in the day. I remember. Right. And so not just his stuff, but also his roommate stuff. Like they were just prying into every little detail possible. Like one of the cops like in the kitchen saw this collage of missing kid milk cartons that were like displayed on the wall. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to Jello and asks like, do you know where they are? <laughs> Where are they? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. It's a, it's a collage. I, I'm an artist. Yeah. I make a collage. It's like, okay, fine. I don't know. They're right here. I mean, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so, They're in the back. You got me. <laughs> and then they ask the most important question. They're like, where's the painting? 
Yeah. And Jello says, in a museum. <laughs> <laughs> this went on for hours, of course. And at the same time, the police were raiding the Alternative Tentacles office and the Mordam Records warehouse. There, they finally found the evidence. Yep. Yes, they found it. It was a chrome slide uh, of the painting that, that they got from, uh, from Giger's publicist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, yes, we're good. I don't know why you needed a raid with cops <laughs> for that. It's in the stores. Yeah. You oh, just go buy it. And by the way, they forgot the chrome uh, slide <laughs> that, they, that they found. They actually forgot it. They actually just brought it, all the evidence they brought in was just like a bunch of mail and business ledgers and, and copies of the album that you could just easily have just bought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's intimidation. They did it because they wanted to do it. You know, they did. And I suppose they needed proof that, uh, that they were, they could say like, okay, yeah, this is proof that we found the chrome uh they we found the chrome uh plate in the offices so we can prove that they printed it and we can prove intent we can prove all this shit (laughs) but i think a lot of it really does have to do uh with uh intimidation and jello actually brought up a pretty good point on one of his spoken word records uh where he said that they were going through his address book and they came across the uh contact information for uh gibby haynes lead singer of butthole surfers yeah and the cops actually said do you know where they are do you know them too (laughs) that means that they were looking they were keeping tabs on the underground they knew who butthole surfers were they knew who all of these people were when are they coming back to town (laughs) i need to get my son a (laughs) t-shirt i hear they're the best live band in the underground of the 80s <laughs> do they really take acid for every performance? I gotta see this. How much fire do they use? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, it really was about intimidation, and and also like it is. There's so many absurd elements to the raid uh, that it does make it funny looking back on it. But really, think about if we were at home and a bunch of cops stormed our apartment, saying that we were distributing harmful podcasts. That a, that a kid had listened to a podcast of ours and they have to come in and find our recording equipment <laughs> in order to take us to fucking court. And they rip up our entire house. They rip up everything that we own. They go through every single book that we have, every single record. They trash the fucking place. And then at the end of it, you are left with uh, criminal charges. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the way you painted, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> It's fucking awful, you know, and, and it's so it's all completely unnecessary. You know, it's, this is all insanely unnecessary. And to really see how they got to that point, we got to go back in time just a little bit because we've got to see how America got to the point where a district attorney felt like a music censorship case was a political winner that was going to get him nationwide recognition as a fucking hero. Now, as we talked about last episode, Ronald Reagan was elected on feelings, not facts, ushered into office, not because he had the best ideas, but rather because he made Americans feel good about themselves after a long period of general malaise, (laughs) as fucking Jimmy Carter put it. In other words, it was a campaign of culture, the silent majority, as Nixon called it, a return to so-called family values that all sounded well and good, but didn't actually address the root causes of any of America's ills. But the problem with winning a campaign in this manner and winning again four years later in the second largest landslide of the century is that other politicians follow your lead. And that is how we got the Parents Music Resource Center, a.k.a. the PMRC. I know you'd think it'd 
it sounds like a re- like a center where you could just parents can get music. <laughs> You know, it's like, hey, where's the new Dead Kennedys album? <laughs> but no, it's not that. Okay, just don't, don't don't get confused and walk in that door. Oh, you've had your third child. Here is your copy of Steely Dan's Aja. Please, uh, please, Dad, have fun with this. Here is your Stevie Ray Vaughan. Have fun with Texas Flood. <laughs> is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Now, the seeds for the formation of the PMRC were planted when Prince's album Purple Rain met Al Gore's wife, Tipper Gore, right as Al was gearing up for his first of three ultimately unsuccessful presidential runs. Gore was trying to get his name in the papers. And as the story goes, Tipper Gore's daughter bought Purple Rain. And when she and Tipper sat down to listen to it together, they heard the song Darling Nikki. You could say she was a sex fiend I met her in a hotel lobby Masturbating with a magazine She said, how'd you like to waste some time And I could not resist When I saw little Nikki grind Sex toys. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's sex toys. It's a very sexy song. Yeah. It's a very graphic song. It's, yes. It, it is very, very graphic. And in the context of the R-rated movie in which this song is featured, Prince's character writes this song to humiliate his girlfriend for working with his rival, Morris Day of Morris Day in the Time. But out of context, in Tipper Gore's daughter's bedroom, masturbating in a hotel lobby with a magazine sounds a little gratuitous. Even though, you know, the soundtrack, it's for an R-rated movie. It's obviously made for adults. Prince makes music for adults, except for maybe Bat Dance. Bat Dance was for everyone. Yeah. They about went number one. Number really? one in 1989, Bat Dance, was number one huh. in 1989, and you never hear Bat Dance anymore. It was a number one hit. You never hear Party Man either. <laughs> the, the Batman soundtrack. The, there's the outrage. Everyone forgets that Prince wrote the entire soundtrack to the first Batman movie. Which is really good. It's great. It's a concept movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, that's, but the problem is, is that, you know, Tipper Gore could have just said, hey, you're too young for this record. 
and just taken it away and said, you can't listen to this yet, which would have made it her daughter want to listen to it even more. But, yeah, but yeah. still, that's Tipper's problem with Tipper's daughter. Around the same time that Tipper was fretting about Prince, Susan Baker, wife of Ronald Reagan, chief of staff James Baker, was having a made-up crisis of her own. Her seven-year-old daughter had just come home with a simple question inspired by a recent pop hit. She asked, Mommy! No, no. <laughs> Can I go? No, and she asked, Mommy, what's a virgin? <laughs> an eight-year-old let's just say hypothetically hypothetically what's the matter with an eight-year-old singing along to that song and dancing to it in i don't know 1991 <laughs> <laughs> i guess you're asking what you i mean <laughs> it's just it's a funny thing like when you put big glasses on a baby and have it hold a beer and then you take a picture <laughs> and then you take the beer and the glasses away yeah, i yeah. mean it, it's, the baby doesn't drink the beer no <laughs> it's still funny and you know what the answer for mommy what's a virgin i'll tell you when you're older uh, what? That, oh. That's it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just? You're the parents. Yeah, you're. Just you're explain it. I'm. I'm giving you the easiest possible way out. I'll yeah. tell you when you're older. <laughs> that's the easiest possible way. Easiest possible way. Even if you don't feel like having that uncomfortable conversation with your child, easiest possible way. I'll tell you when you're older. Go ask your mother. <laughs> that's a. That's actually an even easier way. Yeah, that's okay. a much easier way. Go ask your father. Go ask your father. <laughs> Ask your mother. Yeah, and then you just goes back and forth until finally your fucking older brother tells you because that's who tells you these things. Yeah. Yeah, and it's fine. Or you just learn it in school. I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> who cares? It's a catchy song. Everyone has a good time listening to Like a Virgin. Everyone likes that song. It's a great song. But <laughs> I believe this will be the very edited version of No Dogs in Space. I have a lot of work to do today. So anyway. To fight back against all these naughty musicians, Susan Baker and Tipper Gore formed a coalition with a bunch of other so-called Washington wives and formed the tax-exempt PMRC. Yes, they were Washington wives because they were the wives of a lot of uh, government officials in very high places in Washington. And that's pretty much what it is. I mean, they even signed their names in these letters as PMRC, as like, let's say Tipper Gore, Mrs. Albert Gore. Yeah. So they were 
totally aligning themselves with their husbands when they were doing this, even though this is a non-for-profit organization because they're concerned mothers. Yes, and their their husbands were, they were senators, they were business leaders, you know, they, they were people just in, they were power brokers yes. in Washington, D.C. And by extension, these women were also power brokers. These women had real fucking power. Yeah, and a lot of people dismissed them as like bored housewives or, yeah. or party throwers who had, who had nothing else better to do but to meddle in in what goes on in people's home and yeah okay Uh, i (laughs) totally see your partly true totally but i but i don't think it's the right way to go about it like uh these were highly educated women who who studied up on this and and thought this was the right thing to do like susan baker she was a mother of eight and she was deeply religious and and tipper she had a master's in child psychology and already worked with other wives on violence in the media so she had studied up and read up on this yeah Uh, she was wrong yeah she definitely (laughs) well the, the problem is that they took their education and their political clout to promote their bias on yeah. these studies, which is the wrong thing to do. Obviously, you don't just that's not what researchers do. No. Uh, but so but what I'm saying is that they're not idiots. No, they're not. They're not idiots. And they're at, dangerous. They're very dangerous. And to dismiss them as housewives and party throwers uh, is to completely misunderstand a fundamental part of how Washington works. And really, the point of the PMRC was a way for parents to avoid uncomfortable conversations with their children by slapping records that had objectionable language and subject matter with warning labels, shortcutting parental supervision at the expense of artistic freedom. And this had already happened in America once before. It happened in the 50s with comic books. Comic books got slapped with the fucking comics code uh, by after Dr. Frederick Wortham, who was another fucking asshole uh, with a psychology degree that went to Congress and said that comic books were the cause of juvenile delinquency. And he therefore neutered the medium of comics for decades afterward. That's why comic, That's why you had like Superman, like, oh, Superman turned into a gorilla again. Okay, <laughs> fine. The reason why is because they were so insanely limited by uh, the comics code. And so the PMRC sent a letter to 60 record companies as well as the Recording Industry Association of America asking them to please, if you could, fundamentally change the way your entire industry works. And pay wouldn't... for it. Pay for it. <laughs> if you wouldn't mind, maybe doing me a solid thanks. <laughs> now, the RIAA had already received a letter from the Parent Teacher Association the year before with a very similar request. And the RIAA very politely said, are you fucking serious? Rightly citing the First Amendment. But by the time the PMRC sent their letter... The RIAA were working their own interest in Washington, D.C. because it was around the time that the PMRC sent the letter that the RIAA was trying to push the Home Audio Recording Act through Congress. This sounds complicated. It does sound complicated. There's a lot of things. Yeah. But it's really just the, the, the PMRC, the Washington Wives... And the recording industry, mm-hmm. like the music industry, they kept saying over and over again how they were losing money because people were recording music on blank tapes. Home audio recording is killing the record industry. Right. Which actually turned out to be untrue. Completely false. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, exactly. Like they were worried that if a teenager could borrow their friend's Madonna tape and make a copy for themselves, they wouldn't have to pay for their tape or whatever. You know, we used to do that with burning CDs. Yeah. And then, yeah, the 90s were the heyday of burning CDs and in the 80s and the 90s, heyday of mixtapes, burning CDs, all that shit. And the record industry never made as much money as they did in the 90s. Yes. They never made that much money. So 
the RIAA, you know, the recording industry, they said they're not selling as much anymore. We need to recoup these losses somehow because it's not fair. So why don't we add a tax, mm -hmm. right? One cent to every minute of a blank tape. So that's about 60 cents. Yeah. So if, if you bought like 10 blank tapes, uh, you'd pay an extra $6 because they say you're probably going to make copies and rip the recording industry off. So they're like, you don't rip us off. We rip you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the same with home tape recorders. Uh, they would add a, an additional 5 to 25% tax, that extra money going directly into the recording industry as a royalty. So if you add it all up, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. They were literally taking babysitting money from kids to make more money for their board of directors. Yeah, for the board of directors, because not a single fucking cent of this tax went to the people who actually made the music. None of it went to the artists. Not a single fucking bit of it. It all went back to the recording companies. It all went back to the CEOs. All went back to the fucking fat cats up top. Well, that was the proposed legislation, 1985. <laughs> yes, it's all it's all in there. Yeah, and since the RIAA had a political favor to ask of the PMRC, because the PMRC were married to many power brokers in Washington, the RIAA was suddenly much more receptive to parental concerns over subject matter recorded by certain artists. And therefore, a sleazy backroom deal was struck. Everyone's backs were very nicely scratched. <laughs> just, uh, just, I mean, they each had what the other one wanted. Yeah, they really did. But the problem with this deal was that only a handful of record companies agreed, and there was no real motivation for the RIAA to comply once the blank tape tax was pushed through. So, in order to introduce public pressure, the PMRC forced a full-on Senate hearing they got a Senate hearing. <laughs> a huge one. How many nonprofit organizations get a Senate hearing within months of starting? I don't know. I don't know either, actually. <laughs> I, actually, I have no idea. But let's just assume that this is insanely not normal. Let's assume this is crazy, yeah. Yeah, especially because uh, three committee members, uh, John Danforth, Al Gore and Ernest Hollings were married to three women affiliated to the PMRC. Al Gore's wife being Tipper. Actually, they were both on different sides of the room in the Senate hearing. It's weird. It's so it, the whole thing is weird. So yeah, it's a bad idea. It's incestuous. <laughs> it's bullshit. And on September 19, 1985, the Senate showed up to hear the PMRC's proposal of record labeling. Right. So Susan Baker went up first saying in her testimony that the all this explicit content in music affects teenagers in a negative negative way you know she gives statistics on rape and suicide and then blames the music for being one of the contributing factors to those numbers mm -hmm. not proving it but just saying it must be one of them yes and completely uh completely ignoring the uh principle of correlation is not necessarily causation you know and completely ignoring the fact that maybe the kids maybe the, the kids listen to their music because their lives are fucked up <laughs> Not that it's not that their lives are fucked up because they listen to music. Their lives they listen to music because their lives are fucked up and they need some sort of fucking release. Yeah, well, no, they change the order all the time. They're like they listen to ACDC, then they get into drugs. <laughs> it's like not not okay. Nah. Oh, all right, okay, nah. whatever. Okay, so a fundamentalist reverend from Virginia, uh, Jeff Ling. He's uh, he was acting as a advisor to the PMRC. He testified somehow. I don't know what his credentials were other than pastor, but uh, he just went up there and he showed like with a, like a, a like almost like a PowerPoint slide, I mm -hmm. guess. But back then they had just had slides. It was just it was just a big fight. Yeah, it was just slides and gigantic poster boards. Right. With a projector. That's yeah, it. Yeah. So he testified by showing several examples on teen suicides who listen to rock music. 
uh, like Steve Boucher, uh, which is no relation to Eric Boucher, uh, <laughs> Jello Biafra's real name. Uh, Steve Boucher, he was a teenager from Minnesota who shot himself while listening to ACDC's Shoot to Thrill. Ah. And that was just an example. I don't yeah. know why he brought it up, but he's just said it must have been ACDC. Yeah. And there was, of course, like the Ozzy Osbourne one, the get the gun, yes. get the gun. <laughs> Shoot, 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 shoot. So there's exactly, <laughs> and, and that wasn't a. I what did not mean that as any sort of subliminal message or anything like that. I just like saying, "Get the gun, get the gun, shoot, 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 shoot." It's just, it's fun. It's from the behind the music. It's very fun. Did you hear that, kids? Go ahead, go get it. Don't worry, we'll wait. <laughs> so yes, they blamed all these bits. And it was bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> the Tipper Gore, she so she goes on the mic and she reads out these suggestions, right, that the PMRC drafted for the recording industry. Remember, like her suggestions on how to fix this has nothing to do with the parents. No. It has everything to do with the recording industry. So she asked that they voluntarily adopt a rating system for music, kind of like what they do with movies, mm-hmm. right? So it'd be like X for profane or sexually explicit, V for violent lyrics, O for a Occult content. Oh, give me a fucking break. Occult <laughs> content. The fuck is that? So it's just so when someone goes, hey, yeah, I'm in a league with Satan. That's fucking, that's occult content. And yeah, now I that guess. has to come with a fucking Warren level. What about freedom of religion? <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe there should be a C for Christian then. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or or D slash A for drugs or alcohol references, right? So those ratings had to be displayed as, like, as, as a sticker on top of every album cover. And oh, yes. And they had another demand uh oh, sorry suggestion they had another suggestion <laughs> i the, get confused too yes for the record companies to reconsider their contracts with performers who display sex or violence on their records or on live shows reconsider yeah so like think it over do you really want madonna do you really want acdc it doesn't matter that acdc just went platinum 25 times <laughs> but you don't really need them right yeah you don't really need all that money nah they're too <laughs> dirty they're too dirty come on think of the children think of our votes think of al gore becoming president wouldn't that be fun so right <laughs> so the pmrc then singled out 15 songs called the filthy 15 songs they think should be banned from the radio remember they said this is not about censorship mm-hmm. but these songs should be banned from the radio <laughs> songs from artists and bands like prince obviously uh twisted sister black sabbath venom wasp madonna and cindy lopper oh the evil cindy lopper what should we ever do with this cindy lopper <laughs> Well, it's Shebop. Shebop. It's about fucking flicking the bean. Yeah, it's it's about masturbation, right? Yeah. It's not even violent. It's just masturbation. It's just masturbation. Yeah, it's, that's all it is. And it's not even explicitly about masturbation. You have to really think about it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you have to listen to it a few times and like really think about it. That's it's, what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> they, oh, they love doing it. The funny thing about the Filthy 15 is that, you know, Cindy Lauper, Shebop, that was already quadruple platinum by the time they said this has to be taken off the radio. But other lesser-known acts like Venom, the satanic metal band who pretty much inspired black metal, they got the PMRC bump. In fact, being included on the Filthy 15 saved Venom's fourth album from tanking, and they actually brought satanic heavy metal to a much wider audience than it ever would have reached on its own, making sure everyone heard the lyrics, We drink the vomit of priests. (laughs) We drink the vomit of priests. (laughs) 
they wouldn't have... <laughs> How did they get the lyrics to that song? I... I mean, I guess they were printed on the lyric sheet, but man, that's the thing is that they just, they highlighted all this music that like people would never would have known the lyrics to these songs anyhow. Like when I was a kid, you know, 11, 12, like White Zombie, I fucking loved White Zombie. I love White Zombie so much, but all I knew the fucking lyrics was, oh, damn, I can fucking wound that path. Yeah, that boy is fuck out and freak out inside of me. Like, I didn't know Salvation of a Dead. Like, I didn't even know that was Salvation of the Dead. I thought it was Salvation of a Dead. Like, all I knew was 1960. Like, five, yeah. I didn't know the fucking lyrics at all. But you really know that song. Yeah. Hey, no white zombie. I'm still a huge white zombie fan. I fucking love white zombie. So yes, the Senate hearing was definitely displaying all of these bands and all their music and all their album covers just for the whole American public to see. Yeah. And you can also watch it too on cspan.com. <laughs> and they're insanely, insanely obscure bands. Yes. Um, so uh, Jeff Lang, remember the pastor? He uh, he did read the lyrics out loud from a, a song from the Mentors. The band called mentors and he and he's i guess as an example or something he didn't do any justice to it so i'm gonna try to make it i'm gonna try to do a little bit better than how he did on c-span please all right all right listen you little slut (laughs) do as you're told come with daddy for me to pour the gold golden showers Mm. all through my excrement you shall roam wonder what this song's about bend up and smell my anal vapor Your face is my toilet paper. On your face, I leave a shit tower. <laughs> Golden showers. <laughs> yeah, I. I <laughs> well, yay, wonderful. The mentors. The mentors are fucking disgusting. We all know. Yes, the mentors are disgusting. They are meant to be disgusting. They are purposefully a shock rock band. That's their whole thing. They wear black hoods. Uh, it was rumored that Il Duce killed Kurt Cobain. Yeah, no. the, the Il Duce, the lead singer of The Mentors. Right, it was rumored right, right. that he killed Kurt Cobain, and then he ended up being killed himself when he fell asleep drunk on some train tracks, and the train uh, ran him right over. Oh, God. Yeah, but yeah, The Mentors are trash. They're not good. <laughs> <laughs> no one listens to The Mentors. Like, it, it's it's not it's not good. Like, it, it's so strange to me that how deeply they searched through record stores to try to find the filthiest fucking records possible yeah, that no I mean, one listened to. I mean, they did a lot of the brunt work for the rest of us to check this out. <laughs> so, thank you. But in the end, the PMRC won. And in 1985, the RIAA formally agreed to feature the infamous black and white warning sticker on albums. In big, dangerous black and white letters, the label said parental guidance explicit content oh and remember that blank tape tax law uh-huh. uh that it died in 1985 uh it was finally put into uh, to, to law in 1992 yeah al gore co-sponsored that one. Ah, very interesting well, yeah but the other thing too is that uh the whole pmrc thing uh hurt al gore quite a bit i know it's kind of funny <laughs> Well, it would be funny if it wasn't for 2000. Uh, <laughs> it's still very funny. <laughs> but yes, because of the PMRC, we have Danzig's song, Mother. Yeah, Mother! The best karaoke song of all time, according to bearded bartenders everywhere. <laughs> I'm not surprised this label looked insanely cool. And growing up in America in the 90s, like during the heyday of parental guidance, you know, because that big fucking sticker really started showing up, oh, around 1992. 
Seeing that sticker on an album, guaranteed I was going to hear that fucking thing at all costs. I didn't care what it took. I was going to hear that fucking record. Didn't matter how bad it was. That's true. All of my records had that sticker warning on it or printed on the label. So much that like me and my family, we didn't even see it anymore because it was just on everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, think about uh, how cool like uh, fucking Ice Cube's The Predator. Um, You know, one of my favorite hip hop albums. I cannot unsee the parental advisory sticker in the bottom left corner. That's part of what makes it cool. That's part even... of what makes it so. What made it so dangerous at the time? Now I got a wet chick. Yo, ooh. <laughs> 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 this is oh, this is exciting. This is so exciting. But the flip side of that was that it made music bearing that label harder to find. Department stores like Sears, JCPenney, and Walmart, all huge retailers, they refused to carry albums with the sticker, although they did eventually carry edited versions. Furthermore, even smaller record stores and malls across America were getting memos from their landlords telling them that if they were to sell even a single parental advisory record, they'd lose their lease. But when it comes to the main story we're telling today, The PMRC and all the Senate hearings, all the bullshit, and all of the hubbub, it also gave people like Los Angeles City Attorney Michael Gorino the juice he needed to pursue an obscenity trial against Jello Biafra and the dead Kennedys over the penis poster. Yeah, so two months after the raid, June 2nd, 1986, Jello and four other people were each charged with one count of distributing harmful matter to minors, which if, if you're convicted, that's $2,000 fine and a year in jail. Now, the other people who were charged, they were the people who like owned the, the record distribution companies, uh, the record pressing plant. Like the, the guy who made the record was charged with this. Yeah. And, and Microwave. Remember Microwave? I remember um, Microwave. Uh, he, he, was a, he was the roadie slash kind of security guy for Dead Kennedys uh, that we talked about in the last episode. And then uh, he, he got promoted to general manager of Alternative Tentacles. And, uh, but by the time he was charged, though, he already quit. Like he already moved on <laughs> with his life. But he had to Go back. And by the time of the hearing, uh, three of the defendants, uh, all their charges were dropped except for Jello and Microwave, who were indicted and had to go on trial because, fuck that, they're not pleading guilty to this shit. That would set precedent, like you said before. Of course. And this is Jello fucking Biafra. He has been waiting for this his whole fucking life. A fucking public trial of principles. I mean, the man has wanted to be a Batman villain since he was a child. And he's there. He does enjoy a good confrontation. (laughs) I don't think he realized this would take a year and a half of his life, though. No, I mean, it fucked him up in a lot of ways. It did not come without a price. But, I mean, this is the fucking Riddler in Gotham City. Like, (laughs) riddle me this, Gorino. (laughs) He should have played the Riddler at one point. But, yeah, I mean, he's not necessarily getting everything he wants. But, I mean, they picked the wrong motherfucker to go with here because if they would have picked someone else if they would have picked the mentors like if they would have <laughs> picked El Duce El Duce would have like yeah I'll fucking plead guilty I'll spend 30 days in jail I don't give a shit I've already spent 30 days in jail twice this year who gives a shit who cares but Jello, that is a man of principles they fucked with the wrong person now luckily for Jello, he still had plenty of friends to help out Dirk Dirksen, the owner of the Mabuhay Club in San Francisco, where the dead Kennedys first got their start, he was kind enough to start the No More Censorship Defense Fund. From there, Dirksen spread the word on radio stations and print interviews, and even managed to get MTV to play a song from Frankenchrist 
while asking for donations. And this was doubly impressive because the song was MTV Get Off the Air. <laughs> I always talk like I'm way down on planes. I wear a sack baseball jacket everywhere I go. My job is to help destroy what's left of your imagination by feeding you endless doses of tropical mindless garbage. So don't create, be sedate, be a vegetable at home and squat on that dial. If we have our way, even you will believe this is the future of rock and roll. If you could just send your donations <laughs> to the Mabue cl uh, Garden Club, if you guys could just do that, I'm Kurt Loader. <laughs> I love that. I love that MTV agreed with this. I mean, because they they understand. Uh, I mean, at the very least, they understand that that kind of principle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they at least I would say some of the VJs probably got it. I think John Stewart was a VJ on. Uh, MTV around this time. Yeah. Yeah, he, he definitely was around this time. Hey, hell, he might Because John Stewart was actually a Dead Kennedys fan. Well, yeah. I mean, he was a, a quote-unquote fan. Well, he was working as a bartender at a venue where the Dead Kennedys played, and he's like, that's pretty good. I'll go, go pick up a record. And that's, <laughs> that's, I mean, that was it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And the thing is, this whole campaign, it actually worked pretty well. They were able to raise over $80,000, and that included a small donation made by a group of Wrangling Brothers clowns pitching in for the cause. Aww. <laughs> well, was it clown money or real money, though? I it mean, was real money. It was I don't real know. money. Oh, this one's attached to the other bill, and the other bill, and, and it keeps going. Oh, thank you, thank you. Now, that 80000 that covered at the very least the court costs. But the most helpful of all contributions was that Jello's lawyers decided to represent him pro bono yeah and he also had the aclu on his side you know it's always a good thing when you have the aclu on your side that always i mean sometimes they represent neo-nazis because they have to represent everyone uh yeah okay <laughs> uh well i mean it, it, to represent everyone's rights yeah yeah right. of course okay, Every, yeah so if you're representing rights yeah yeah oh, yeah uh, anyway so uh, <laughs> can, can i get a stepladder from this hole <laughs> All right, so uh, Jello and, and Microwave, they went to trial in August of 1987. Uh, the jury got a copy of the poster and the record uh, so they can hold in their hands. Uh, half the jury looked at it upside down, and <laughs> some of them just took a glance at it and then just folded it and just put it away and never looked at it again. Yeah, <laughs> I could understand someone only wanting to see it once. I mean, me and you stared at it for hours. But yes, I, I constantly. Yeah, because yeah. we wanted to understand it. I, I want to get it. I don't yeah. know. I'm not sure. I'm not there yet. Yeah. I'm almost there. You're almost there. Okay, well, maybe in a couple years after we spend like <laughs> once a week, it's like, well, it's time to look at penis landscape again. Let's, yeah, see if she gets it now. Yeah, but we'll see. We'll see. So uh, Jello's defense attorneys, they called three expert witnesses. <laughs> 
<laughs> Witness, witnesses. Witness, witness. <laughs> so the first. I, I understand English isn't your first language. It's fine. We all understand. The first person to testify uh, was an art historian who said Giger was legit. A yeah. world-renowned artist, uh, and and that his artwork showed the the mechanization of sexuality and the exploitation of it in modern society. Okay, and that it also correlated with the lyrics of Dead Kennedy songs like "Soup is Good Food" and uh, "MTV Get Off the Air." Yeah. So the other expert witness was a rock music critic who said the band was known in the music world as a a leftist political band who who pr- presented strong graphics like like this poster. Yeah. He even said like, yeah, this is not even the worst I've seen <laughs> from the dead Kennedys themselves. <laughs> and the third expert witness was the publisher of Bam magazine. Mm. Yeah, imagine when they just brought him up to the stand and Joe was like, ah, oh, right. <laughs> a couple years ago we did that thing. Yeah, Bam magazine was the, at the Bammies that the dead Kennedys wrote a four minute fuck you song just to play for everyone at the Bammies. <laughs> Eddie Money loved it. Carlos Santana didn't. And so this guy, he said he wasn't a huge fan of the Dead Kennedys, <laughs> but he knew about them. And yeah, punk music, it, it, it's meant to be shocking. And, and, and this is no huge surprise. Yeah. All right. So the prosecution did not call any expert witnesses at all <laughs> because they because they thought the poster spoke for itself. So if anything, they, they had a plan to destroy Jello on the stand. Jello was expected to testify, you know, as well as Giger's publicist who had flown in for the trial. But Jello's lawyers decided at the very last minute it'd be better to just rest the case so it could catch Michael Guarino off guard. Yeah. Which it did. Oh, it absolutely did. It fucked up everything. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> the defense rests and Michael's like, fuck. Are we, are we really? Okay. Okay. So he's like quickly crossing out big chunks of his closing statements because he had to like improvise. He's like, we're not having lunch first. Okay. <laughs> Okay, let's do this. So Michael made this like very impassioned speech about obscenity and, and, and went on to say like, if this isn't harmful, nothing is harmful. And he waved the Giger poster all around for the entire courtroom to see, not realizing that about there were 15 minors in the courtroom gallery. <laughs> Just hey, showing kids, it to them. Kids, do you see? This is harmful. Is it not? Is it not harmful? Kids, kids, what do you think about penises now? Oh, you feel all weird about them, don't you? Oh, how does this fuck you up? Oh, you don't know? It's impossible to tell. It's impossible to say and it probably does because you don't even know what the fuck it is. Oh, fuck you, kids. Fuck you. <laughs> I win. Well, Michael wins. It's like you were there. <laughs> and then he, th- he said that Giger sees people the way that Richard Ramirez sees people. The, the serial killer, yes. They, <sighs> he says that they are objects to hurt. They are not human. This is 86. This is right after Ramirez was caught. This is the fucking Night Stalker. This is Los Angeles still in the throes and still in the grief of the fucking Night Stalker murders and the terror of it. That is in insanely bad taste. <laughs> yeah. Insanely bad taste. It's it, such a bad idea. Meanwhile, the defense is just smiling. Just smiling the whole time. So they get up and they do their closing s- statements about like thematic unity, the politics of the band, the first and the First Amendment. Then Jello's lawyer asked Michael, hey, can you hold up that poster again? I just got to make one more point. Yeah. Can you please do it? And he did. And then everyone started laughing. 
Because that's the thing. This harmful material would make people laugh. Yeah, it's funny. It's like a Monsters, Inc. thing. You know, it's <laughs> weird. Yeah, I mean, really, because the, the, the poster is like, if, if it was 1986 and I went and bought Frankenchrist, you know, I'm excited about the new Dead Kennedys record. I go out, I buy it, I bring it home, I open it up, and I pull out, it's like, oh, there's a poster in here, there's an insert, cool, and I open it up, and it's that, I'm fucking laughing for days. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It's very funny. I get it. Yeah. And. You know, and as the trial went on, like, it became clear to the surprisingly hip jury that the poster and the album were inextricably linked as a single piece of art. And to tie it all together, the jury actually listened to Frankenchrist in its entirety during deliberation. That meant that at one point in time, 12 American citizens sat in a courthouse with a turntable listening to Jockarama. Actually, there was 11. Uh, one of them excused themselves to the bathroom and she wouldn't leave the bathroom until the record was done playing. <laughs> Gee, I wonder how she voted. <laughs> well, in the bath, the mighty throne, actually. Well, anyway, 11. 11 people sat listening to Jockarama, reading along on a lyric sheet as a part of their civic duty as good Americans. About them hogs. Right. imagine a bunch of people it's like so when he says beef patrol uh-huh. what do you think <laughs> do you think he's referring to a penis like do you think that's a part of the overall artistic nature of this i don't know why don't we just write penis all over it because there's not enough <laughs> on the lyrics so how did all how did it shake out well the jury they deliberated for about a day and a half and on that second day an, an hour and a half after listening to jacarama <laughs> the jury gave their verdict they were deadlocked in the votes Five voted guilty and seven voted not guilty. Yeah. The votes were in favor for acquittal. That means it was a hung jury, so the judge declared a mistrial. And even though Michael Gorino filed a motion for a new trial immediately, the judge dropped the charges and the case was dismissed. And that took three weeks of trial and cost taxpayers $50,000. Yeah, the judge was like, we shouldn't have even been here in the first place. <laughs> like, yeah, it was a fun month at work. But fuck, this was a waste of everyone's time. <laughs> We're not taking this back. We're not doing this again. Jesus Christ, man. And then the judge gave a stern lecture to Jello and Microwave about being more careful in the future. But Jello didn't care. He got up. He raised his arms up. He raised his arms up and yelled, we won! We won! We won! And he just ran out of the courthouse going, ha 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 and then the judge, still with her gal, was like, but I can still find you for contempt. Contempt of court. Come back here. You punks. Tuck in your shirt. <laughs> so, uh, so right after, you know, in the hallway, everyone's just kind of getting their stuff together and everything. Nine of the jurors asked Jello for copies of the poster. So Jello gave him each an autographed copy of the record and the poster himself. Nine? Nine. Seven voted, five voted, it's- 
Two of them voted to guilty. Yes. <laughs> yes, I know. I don't know if he signed that toilet or not <laughs> in that jury place, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They're just like, we're never going to forget this. Yeah. This is this is an insane this trial. Is, yeah, this is fun. This was fun. I, I tried sending you to jail and completely ruining free speech when it comes to music, but could you sign my poster? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and so Michael Garino walked out. He, he was shaking. He knew he lost. He uh, went up to Jello. He stuck out his hand to shake his hand, and Jello rejected it, but instead tried to give him a, an EP of Big Black. Big, <laughs> oh, B- Big Black's first EP? Yeah. I mean, their cover is even more offensive. <laughs> <laughs> he hands it to him, but Michael just, he just threw it on the ground and walked away disgusted, saying, don't be a bad winner. He should have listened to the Big Black. It's a pretty great EP. <laughs> Steve Albini's first album. It's his first band, and you might like it. Yeah, he's a dick, but, you know, he makes great music. Now, Michael Gorino, he, he didn't bother looking into researching the dead Kennedys before the trial, which I was a major, was his biggest problem. Huge mistake. Because later he said that halfway through the trial, he realized that the lyrics of the album were in so many ways socially responsible. They were anti-drug and pro-individual. And that he was not just on the wrong side of the case, but he was actually on the wrong side of history. Totally. And he knows that now. He's actually since stopped working for the DA's office, and uh, he became dean of a small law school in California. Yeah, but he does also have to deal with students coming in going like, are you the guy that tried prosecuting Jello Biafra? And he has to go, yeah, yeah, I was. And they go, why? What the <laughs> fuck were you thinking? And he has to go, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Yes, he does. He does admit that he was a, a very cocky prosecutor. Like, he had won 30 cases in a row until yeah. then. And to him, it was like a slam dunk. But now, now to pay penance, Michael was forced to listen to every Dead Kennedys record on high volume on a near daily basis <laughs> because of the music coming from his teenage son's bedroom. Son became a gigantic Dead Kennedys Massive. fan. <laughs> and not just Dead Kennedys, but also like Jell-O's spoken word records. So he had to hear just Jell-O talking like constantly <laughs> just jello 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 talking 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 uh, but he said it changed his life for the better uh, he ended up uh he left the da's office pretty soon afterwards because he realized like i'm not doing anything good here there's nothing uh to be done that will actually move the needle of society in any way whatsoever yeah. in the da's office so he devoted his life to better pursuits and in a roundabout sort of way like jello won twice he yeah. changed someone. He changed someone's life. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and, and they became friends. They did. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, they did a This American Life together. In and like they, 2005 <laughs> or something. And they ended up like making plans for dinner. And it's like, can my son come? He's a huge fan. It's like, yes, of course he can come. Got along like a house on fire. A <laughs> couple of California liberals just fucking like, well, I think, yeah, well, this, this Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> But if we're trying to figure out what the fucking point really was with all of this, it all came down to a statement made by Tammy Schwartz and her mother, Mary. They were the two people who'd started this whole goddamn mess in the first place. You know, Mary was the one who'd reported Frankenchrist to the state attorney. After the trial, Tammy said that penis landscape wasn't harmful to her at all. In fact, she just said, it's gross. Because it, 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 well, it is. It, she said more like, I just thought it was kind of gross. It was just kind of gross. <laughs> kind of gross. It is. That's the whole point. It's supposed to be ugly. As far as Mary went, she said, I thought I'd just have to complain and it'd all be taken care of. I didn't realize it would all go to court and be a big to-do. <laughs> well, I don't know what she was expecting. A but, big... that everyone would just recall all these like it's like a Honda. <laughs> no. A big to-do. 
Even though Jello Biafra technically won, there were consequences to this fucking to-do. First of all, the record distributor who put out Frankencrust filed for bankruptcy due to the costs associated with the case. A lot of people lost their jobs and someone lost their fucking business. They lost their livelihood. Second, the entire Dead Kennedys discography was banned from Warehouse Records, the largest record chain in California. In fact, that's how Warehouse had gotten out of the suit. Warehouse was originally named as a plaintiff in the suit because that's where Tammy had bought the record. But Warehouse got out of it by saying, you know, we'll just... We just won't carry Dead Kennedy's records anymore. No Dead Kennedy's records at all. And that was good enough for the district attorney. That tells you quite a bit about this fucking case. Dozens of other stores followed suit, and it became harder and harder to find Dead Kennedy's records. And although this last consequence didn't necessarily happen as a direct result of the trial, I'm sure all the hubbub had a little something to do with it. In between the obscenity charge and the trial, the Dead Kennedys broke up. Yeah, well, there was a lot of tension within the band since before even the trial started. East Bay Ray walked into rehearsal one day uh, in January 1986, and he said, I'm leaving the band. He, he just felt musically that they were recycling their ideas a lot, and it just didn't make sense to keep going. Yeah. So it really hurt the rest of the band. Like, it hurt their feelings. Like, they were breaking up. Yeah. They even thought for just a second, they thought, like, why don't we get Ron Emery from TSOL <laughs> to replace Ray? But... Ultimately, they decided, like, it's just not going to be Dead Kennedys anymore. So let's let's just break up, finish our last studio album, release it, and then we'll just let everyone know. Yeah. Not every band is the damned. You know, not every band can replace a member, replace a guitarist, you know, replace a bassist, and just kind of have a revolving door of, <laughs> <laughs> of artists. Like, sometimes it really is. Like, these four guys, you know, are, I mean, obviously the Dead Kennedys could get a new drummer and still survive, but at the very least, it's the three. It's Klaus, it's East Bay Ray, it's Jello Biafra. Those three guys together, that's the fucking magic. That's the soup right there. <laughs> and without those three guys, it ain't Dead Kennedys. And so the Dead Kennedys played their last show on February 21st, 1986 at Freeborn Hall in Davis, California. Now this show is actually recorded, although only one live track has been released, as far as I know. Collected on the live album Mutiny on the Bay, the song from this last show is a version of Kill the Poor in which Jello takes a quick stab at one of his favorite punching bags of the mid-80s. Huh? The, the Challenger Shuttle. What? <laughs> I'll explain in a second. There's a point. There is a point. There's other targets. <laughs> there, but there's a point with the Challenger Shuttle. There, it's a good point. <laughs> Efficiency and progress is ours once more. Look what we get. A satellite bomb! It's nice and quick and clean and gets things done! Sure got the shuttle! All right, the Challenger Shuttle thing. Uh, right, yeah. 
well, apparently the the Challenger shuttle, uh, you know, it was an actual shuttle. You know, the the shuttle system was it was to take things from Earth up to space, bring and to bring the shuttle back down so it could take more things up to space. And apparently, uh, the trip after the Challenger shuttle, of course, the Challenger shuttle exploded. We all know that, right? The yeah, trip, I saw the, no- the, yeah, the Netflix. We thing. saw the Netflix thing, which is pretty good. Uh, the next one up was supposed to take a whole lot of plutonium, oh, and uh-huh. if that would have exploded, um, Florida would be pretty oh. fucked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, you would have. So yes, thank God the Challenger exploded. Oh, yes, that a lot. His whole reasoning was that a lot more people would have died. If the next one was going to blow up, because as we know from the Netflix documentaries, we know now. Yeah, that wasn't one on of a Netflix them, documentary. One of them was going to blow up. OK, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was one of the, the shuttle was going to blow up eventually. Um, so, yeah, it could have been a lot fucking worse. <laughs> It could have been so much worse. Florida could still be a radioactive wasteland right now. <laughs> that would have been a memory from our childhood. Not like, oh, no, the teacher's dead. It's like, oh, no, Florida's dead. Ah. So, yeah, he had a point. So, okay. He just made a good point in a bad way. Is this the best timeline? <laughs> really? I mean, yes, I guess so. In I- some ways. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Now, even though the Dead Kennedys were broken up, they still had one more album to release, Bedtime for Democracy, which, you know, Bedtime for Democracy, it's a cleanup record. Yeah. It's mostly forgettable hardcore songs that were heavy handed even by Dead Kennedy standards. And aside from a couple of solid riffs from East Bay Ray on songs like Cesspools of Eden, uh, which follows the same long song structure, Frank and Christ, that's why it's the best song on the album, Mm -hmm. Bedtime for Democracy sounds like a band who's just sort of sick of the joke. They're either sick of the joke or... They lost their nerve because Frank, yeah. that song, yeah. Yeah, I think it might be more they lost their nerve. Yeah. Uh, so many fingers pointing at them at all times <laughs> in every single possible way. Yeah. And, and like you said, like we said, like uh, they, they did a high production value of all these reverbs. They they kind of pulled it back. They pulled it back and they just did. It's 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 a very it's a, there's a, a high track listing on uh, Bedtime for Democracy. There's so many fucking songs and a lot of them are just it's very simple hardcore. Uh, and uh, the times in which they still stuck with the Frank and Christ formula, those, those are the best moments on the album. But. There's still a couple of gems. Yeah. You know, no, there's some good songs. On yeah, there. there's some good songs in there. Like Cesspools of Eden is great. And uh, fucking I Spy. It's a heavy surf track. It's fucking sick. Check it out. Oh, my God. 
fucking solid. It's catchy. Mm-hmm. But overall, Dead Kennedys has just run its course. After the breakup, Jello Biafra did pretty well for himself. He fully took over operations at Alternative Tentacles while channeling his anger into a spoken word career, and he collaborated with artists like No Means No, The Melvins, and surprisingly, the catchiest one, uh, fucking Mojo Nixon. <laughs> Mojo Nixon. Well, let's go burn on Nashville down, set it all aflame. Barbecue those greeds, head make country weak and lame. Burn, burn, Nas Vegas, cleanse its rancid soul. Burn, burn, branch it too, make it a big black hole. Yeah! He's just doing backups on that one. Yeah, but he's still doing a hell of a job. <laughs> he's doing he's doing backups. Burn, burn, Nashville down, burn it to the ground. Like, it's, it's <laughs> you just great. invited him to come along. <laughs> I mean, they wrote the album together. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, it's, it's it was a full like the album was fully uh released as Jello Biafra uh and uh Mojo Nixon. It's called Prairie Home Invasion, released in nineteen ninety four. It's fucking great. I love it. I love that it exists. I love that. The, I just love that Mojo Nixon and Jello Biafra did an album together. And Jello, I mean, hell, he was on Oprah like twice. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Phil Donahue and Crossfire. Like he did all of the the, the speaking network uh, things. Yeah, he really did. And it seemed like he was still wearing the same suit that he bought for the fucking mayoral run. Yeah. It was that and same... for the trial, too. <laughs> he has one suit. It's like one ugly brown suit that he bought in a fucking thrift store in 1979. And it. Is gotten him that it got him all the way to Oprah in 1990, <laughs> sitting next to Ice T and fucking finally being able to yell at Tipper Gore. And man, he will still yell about Tipper Gore. I read, I f- fucking watched this thing, this YouTube video that was like him uh, talking about his record collection. It's a, a episode of like Crate Diggers. It's really fun. I f- actually yeah. found out that me and Jello have very similar music tastes. <laughs> yeah, um, you do. Actually, you really do. <laughs> but he still, still, it was done in like 24. 20- 15 and he still mentions Tipper Gore. Yeah. He's like, he still mentions like, <laughs> he's still like offhanded like, that's something that Tipper Gore probably wouldn't like very much. And it's like, Jello, just, just ask her out. <laughs> you know, she and Al Gore divorced 10 years ago. It's time. It's time. Just tell her how you feel. But as far as how the other band members did, they were still making cash on what records did sell, and a compilation of Dead Kennedy singles called Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death, released in 1987, eventually became one of their most popular records. It's it's all, it's got Police Truck, it's got the original versions of California Uber, Alice, and uh, Holiday in Cambodia. It's fucking, it's great. It's the most yeah. popular fucking Dead Kennedys album on Spotify. But as far as their personal and professional lives after Dead Kennedys went, the other band members didn't fare quite as well as Jello did. 
Yeah. Al- although some fared worse than others. Yeah, I mean, like, Klaus Floride, like, he played in a few bands, and he produced several albums for other bands, but uh, he also worked on his solo stuff, mm-hmm. e- even before the Dead Kennedys broke up. But afterwards, he did get to release two solo albums on Alternative Tentacles. And then much later, he actually played bass on tour with the legendary Stardust, uh, the legendary Stardust Cowboy no. in, in the 2000s. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. I didn't know that at all. I think there, there's a live uh, album, I think, of him playing, because he recorded it uh, oh. and him playing bass on it. I've got to hear. Okay. okay. So I, now I know what I'm doing this yes, afternoon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so D.H. D. Peligro, he played in a couple of little bands too, but he uh, spent most of his time smoking crack yeah. and shooting coke. Yeah, D.H. Had, hard, hard, had a hard time of it. Yeah, he actually led into a full-blown heroin addiction. But in 1988, his luck appeared to change when his good friend Flea asked D.H. to join the Red Hot Chili Peppers. As a drummer. I was like, great, okay, awesome. But on the condition that he didn't drink or use drugs since their lead singer, Anthony Kiedis, was fresh off rehab and their guitarist had recently died of a heroin overdose. Everyone's always fresh off rehab in the fucking Chili Peppers. (laughs) Especially this time. This is like pre-mother's milk. Yeah. They're yeah. all fucked up constantly. I gotta read. Apparently, fucking Anthony Kiedis's uh, fucking biography, Scar Tissue. Yes. Apparently, it's fucking have insane. You, we have to read it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, DH, he, he actually agreed to this. He's like, okay, yes, I'll go in sober uh, and I'll play with you guys. But after a few months, uh, he was fired for uh, showing up to a Spin Magazine interview, wasted and nodding off. And uh. so he was replaced by Chad Smith, and the rest is history. Yeah. There's Mother's Milk after that with higher their cover of Higher Ground. Then after that, is Blood Sugar Sex Magic and which is one of the biggest albums of the entire fucking decade. Exactly. So, yeah, so he It's all about heroin too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after a couple stints in rehab, DH moved into his mom's basement and taught himself how to play the guitar again. And he wrote a few songs, and he recorded a demo, and Jello actually encouraged DH like, "You got to start your own band. I'm going to give you a name. The name of your band, Peligro." Great name. It's actually really good. And he's like, "You can also release any any album you want on Alternative Tentacles anytime. So DH actually did release a, a record from the band, uh, the Peligro, in 1995. Yeah, I mean, and that that was the thing about you know Jello is that he was running Alternative Tentacles, and every member of Dead Kennedys said like, "Yeah, you you fucking put together an album, I'll release it. Like, we'll release it. We'll put out anything you fucking want to put out. Yeah. Like, just fucking get it to me." Uh, and he did that with East Bay Ray too. Like East Bay Ray kept recording records and putting them out on Alternative Tentacles. And so, in other words, like, there was a friendship between these guys. It was strained. It was always (laughs) strained. I mean, they've gone through a lot. (laughs) They've gone gone through a lot together. And there was, you know, there was the working relationship between Jello and East Bay Ray was always kind of contentious. And I think that's part of what made it good. Sometimes you do need that contention. You need that kind of back and forth. Somebody to tell you no and somebody to fight. You know, sometimes that results in great fucking art. But in 1997, that all came crashing down. That year, Jello became embroiled in a lawsuit over Dead Kennedy's royalties that were supposed to have been paid out from alternative tentacles to Klaus, Ray, and DH. Now, the particulars of this case are murky to say the least, but Vivale, who was also the editor of the zine Search and Destroy, broke it down as best could be done on her site, researchpubs.com. And you can also check out the other the other side of the story on deadkennedysnews.com. Ah, and Vivelle's a fucking fantastic writer, by the way. She actually sent us, uh, she, she's still selling old copies of Search and Destroy. Yeah, that's, uh, she sent one to me 
personally with yeah. a note and everything i yeah. mean she doesn't know who like she does she's not like carolina doggo from no dogs in the Cave. <laughs> she's like dear customer yeah it was dear customer yeah she's still putting them out and still sending them out they've got they've apparently uh got still got a few copies of like these search and destroy uh archives left for sale buy them they're fucking they're they're wonderful artifacts of yeah. the era now, by the time the lawsuit came about in 1997, the Dead Kennedys were an institution selling albums at a rate of almost 100,000 units a year, which accounted for almost 50% of the annual income at Alternative Tentacles. Now, 100,000 units, that's not a gigantic amount of royalties, especially when it's split four ways. But to guys like Klaus, Ray, and DH, who weren't doing lucrative speaking tours, but were still trying to survive as artists, this was, at the very least, rent money. Like, it's a good chunk of change. But the thing about Alternative Tentacles is that it's a small business run by an artist. And artists don't tend to be the best or most meticulous businessmen. And some pretty egregious, accidental mistakes were made concerning Dead Kennedy's royalties. And so, when the new general manager at the label discovered that Alternative Tentacles owed $76,000 in royalties to Klaus Ray and DH, Jello allegedly told her, keep quiet about it. Yeah. At least for right now. Yes. Now, most likely, Jello told her to keep quiet, not because he wasn't planning on paying the guys. Of course he was going to fucking pay them. But he probably, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine he probably needed time to figure out how the fuck to come up with $76,000 without bankrupting the label. I think his lawyer talked him into, like, doing something like, don't tell them yet, or keep the money in a trust for now, or something along those lines, because maybe he scared him into saying, like, they could take away alternative tentacles from you, they sue you, they see this, they, they'll blame you, even if you go up and apologize or something. That's also my speculation. I don't know. Either way, Jello made a huge mistake, and he really fucked up. He really fucked up. Yeah, he, he was he, in the wrong. He listened to, the, he listened to the wrong people. I think he did listen to the lawyers when he very much should have just gone to his fucking buddies and been like, hey, I fucked up. Here's a check. Here's a check. <laughs> Not even here's it. a check. It's like, can we work out like a payment system or something <laughs> like that? Because I ain't got $76,000. Like, can we work out something? Like, you want a paycheck for a while? Like, maybe we can figure that out. Uh, and, you know, of course, word got back to East Bay Ray about the discrepancy. And East Bay Ray might not have been so zealous about getting that money from Jello. And this is, of course, according to Jello. This is what Jello said. The reason why this is the reason why uh, Jello said that East Bay Ray went after him. It was a Levi's ad. That's what. Yes. Yeah. Jello went around telling everyone that uh, Ray and Klaus and, and DH were, were were pissed off at Jello because he. Because he said no to licensing a song uh, to, to Levi's Dockers ad, right? That's- Holiday in Cambodia. Yes. <laughs> uh, according to Jello, the band were offered $200,000 to feature Holiday in Cambodia. <laughs> and Ray and Klaus like, totally signed off on it and said, yeah, sure, okay. And Jello said no. So they decided, okay, no, we're not, just not going to do it. And that's when he said that their relationship began to sour. Now, Jello said that Ray even called him twice and tried to bully him into into saying yes to the commercial, but but Jello wouldn't budge or something. I don't know about bullying. He probably called him and said, like, dude, $200,000 is a lot of fucking money. Uh, we need it. <laughs> but you see, that's the thing. Ray and Klaus said that wasn't true. They, they explained that Ray was just doing his job as administrator of their band's business by reaching out every time an offer comes their way. So, so he formally asked the band members, yay or nay, are you into this? And Klaus said, yeah, I, I guess we can. I mean, DH had hospital bills from ODing on drugs all the time. And mm-hmm. he had a motorcycle accident. Like, that could have helped him out a little bit. But Jello said no to the offer. And they all said, okay. Like, they said they were pushing for it yeah and greg workman who was uh he was actually the gm for 
alternative tentacles at the time he said that's all ridiculous all right he, he said someone from levi's contacted them about the possibility of using their music they didn't offer the band any money and the higher-ups at levi's actually shot it down anyways as soon as they hurt they're like no we're not doing that <laughs> it's fucking that's stupid yeah <laughs> so there wasn't going to be a D- dead kennedy song on a levi's ad anyways they ended up using the, the pretenders yeah so i mean it was all for nothing but Rain Klaus said, of course, Jello keeps just saying this just to, to just like turn people away from us and, and get angry at us. And he's just using this one little thing when really we're just fighting over just the right of having our, our royalties paid to us. Yeah. And so to make a long story short, Jello lost the suit. He lost sole control over where and how his songs could be used when it came to licensing. And he was ordered to pay $200,000 in damages and unpaid royalties to the other band members. Because they had tacked on this other charge to the whole thing that Alternative Tentacles and specifically Jello had not properly advertised the Dead Kennedys back catalog. Uh, because Cherry Red had done a re-release of uh, Fresh Fruit for Rotten Vegetables in the UK and it had sold really well. And so they said, well, why the fuck aren't you doing that with plastic surgery disasters and Frank? Christ and bedtime for democracy and so the court ruled like oh yeah he was fucking up on that so pay them damages pay them two hundred thousand dollars and the way the ruling came out in the end concerning licensing was that no matter who wrote a specific dead Kennedy song the band now had a four-way vote on how those songs could be used that meant that the other dead Kennedys were free to use Jello songs however they wanted, just so long as they had the majority. And they used this power to partly reunite in 2001 with Dr. No Frontman Brandon Cruz in Jello Spot. Yeah, so what they did is that they actually released a live album, Mutiny on the Bay, in 2001. And to promote it, they decided to organize a bunch of bands to play as the band members. You know, they did their meets and, meet and greets and shaking hands and, and signing records. But then DH said... How about we play a few songs ourselves at the party? Mm. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. So they had a few rehearsals. They they asked Jello to join, and he said, "Ha, no." Ha, ha, ha. So D H D H brought in Brandon Cruz, and they killed it at the release party. And, and obviously, there were booking agents at the party, and they just swarmed the guys. And they're just like, "You should go on tour." Please go on tour, which they did. And, and not just in the U.S., but like everywhere from Japan to Australia to Latin America and and just kept playing just their old songs over and over again, just for, for the new generation, for the older generation, for everybody. And when Brandon quit after a couple of years, they recruited another singer and then another. I think they're on their fourth one right now. Yep. And of course, Jello Biafra uh, sued the band saying that they were using Jello Biafra impersonators, <laughs> which... I don't know. I kind of get that, I suppose. But hey, you but know, it's after, not necessarily but, true. Though. Yeah, but after the lawsuit, you know, he he lost all those rights. You know, as long he, the one thing he did sign off on is he was totally cool with using police truck in Tony Hawk Pro Skater too, uh, which I think he did just because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Well, some say that all the bickering over royalties and copyrights tarnished the band's image, somehow ruining the legacy of one of the most anti-corporate bands in punk rock. As one wag put it, if the band left a statue, it was now covered in pigeon shit. But I can't agree with that. All the people involved were just musicians trying to survive. And while it ain't the best look in the world, trying to survive day to day is a hard fucking business for anyone trying to do something creative. And at the end of the day, people fuck up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they didn't go to business school. They were just a bunch of musicians, and they owned a, a business. Who who knew how big it would get at this, to this yeah. point? People fuck up. People make bad decisions. That doesn't change what they did before. 
No matter what you think of the lawsuit, there is no arguing that the legacy the dead Kennedys left behind was already established and utilized by dozens, if not hundreds of bands well before 1997 came about. Yeah, the Dead Kennedys were an essential part of the birth of the underground scene network, along with Black Flag, of course, Minor Minor Threat, and DOA. Remember, they were just kids barely out of high school at this time. Like, they were teenagers. They didn't have money or, or connections to the music industry. If they wanted their band to play, they would have to book the tour themselves. Of course. And find places to stay. Yeah. And, and find food. Well, find places to stay. That happens after the show, and you it's more of a hope. Yeah. <laughs> so what's everyone doing later? It's a lot of that. Who's got a couch? <laughs> <laughs> and same thing with the kids who wanted to hear this band. It's like, what if you're a kid in the middle of nowhere in a, in a time before the internet, right? Like, how do you get to see Dead Kennedys play? Mm. Uh, how do you even learn about a Dead Kennedys band to want to see them play? Yeah. You go to your local record store, pick up a couple fanzines or zines, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> uh, like 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 Maximum Rock and Roll that was started by Tim Yohannan in Berkeley, California. And its first issue was a booklet insert in a compilation record, Not So Quiet on the Western Front. That compilation was released on Alternative Tentacles. Of course. 1982. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all connected. It's all fucking connected. Yes. So zines like Maximum Rock and Roll, like they would write up about the music scene in different towns and, and review live shows and records. And the record reviews also included the home address of the band or or their indie record label or or the drummer's mom. Like, <laughs> they always had an address for, for contact. And Jello would constantly be writing to these bands asking for a copy of their record because he desperately wanted to hear their music based on just on the review or the album cover alone. Yeah. And setting up a correspondence between bands was a very common thing within the punk scene. Yeah. They would get to know each other and, and talk about stuff they like and, and invite them to their hometown to play a, a show and, and crash on their couch. You know, many fun slumber parties. <laughs> <laughs> like, Dead Kennedys invited Black Flag to open for them October 1979, and, and they became good friends from that. Yeah. And not just these bands, but, like, many punk fans would put together small shows in their hometown because what else is there to fucking do? And not just these bands, not just, like, Dead Kennedys and Black Flag. Like, many punk fans would put together small shows in their hometown like these shows were usually like what in church basements vfw halls warehouses and shitty neighborhoods always in a shitty neighborhood <laughs> and if they had a bathroom that worked it was a win fucking big plus yeah <laughs> and, and and they would promote with flyers they would set up a cover charge book the bands so these fans who are also the same age about like 16 17 would become the bookers and promoters everyone was part of the network just like Tyler Durden said it would happen. <laughs> Except it happened 20 years before that fucking movie. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, the Dead Kennedys were a huge part of the beginning of a counterculture scene that changed rock and roll music scene forever. Like the whole scene. Yeah. It changed the way music was done. Like it changed the way shows were done. It changed the way recording was done. It changed the way everything was done. I mean, it's they were a part of the scene, a part of the, the scene that they actually started labels and kept labels going. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like Alternative Tentacles, like they would release and well, they would produce and release uh, all these bands that they they figured like they need documenting. People need to hear about them. And then same thing with Ian MacKay's uh, Discord records and, and Tesco V and, and then uh, Corey Rusk's uh, Touch and Go records. Like all three of those labels are still releasing indie records to this day. 
30 years later. Absolutely. I mean, these guys were the examples. Like, they were the ones that showed everybody else, here's how you do it. You know, the independent, here's how you create an independent label, put out whatever the fuck you want, have whatever bands you want on there, and do it your fucking way. And they didn't just inspire other people to, you know, do independent record labels. I mean, hell, they inspired me. Like, when we were first starting out, like, Last Podcast Network, you know, way back when it was called, like, fucking Cave Comedy Radio. Like, in the first place, like, when we were trying to figure out how to run this whole thing and how to build this thing, how to make shows, how to uh, spread the word, there was no template for what we were doing. Like podcast networks weren't really a thing. So what I did is I looked at Discord. I looked at Alternative Tentacles. I looked at uh, Touch and Go. I looked at Sub Pop. You know, I looked at these independent record labels uh, and saw how they did things. How did they build their network? How did they, uh, what mistakes did they make was a very important thing to look at. It was like, what mistakes did they make? You know, what things did they uh, do right? What is the key to longevity? Uh, And without these examples, you know, without all these guys, uh, without all these examples, I don't know if the world ever would have heard last podcast on the left or any of the other shows that we have on the network. Like, I don't know if we would have gotten to the point where people would have heard us because those guys were the fucking inspiration. They inspire so fucking much. And even outside the nuts and bolts work that alternative tentacles, and dead Kennedys and Jell will be off for dead. There's still the music. My oh, God, yes. the fucking music. Right. <laughs> yes. Besides helping to create one of the most popular subgenres of punk, which influenced countless musicians afterwards and all kinds of different genres, the music made by the Dead Kennedys held influence that extended far beyond the music world. Besides just being one of the best bands in punk rock musically, the Dead Kennedys were a band that could change the way a person approached the world. Get angry? Yes. Get indignant? Absolutely. Get your facts right? Essential. But if you were to distill Dead Kennedys into one lesson that everyone can use is that it's possible to do all those things and still have a good fucking time doing it. You can laugh into the abyss while still being angry, still actively work for change while lamenting the futility of your actions, and goddammit, you can still believe that sometimes the good guys can win, even if it almost always comes with a price. Woo! Wow. <laughs> oh, God. And that's the Dead Kennedys. That's, that's it. That's, that's it. it. That oh, is gosh. A, that, is a, that is the Dead Kennedys. That's that's the series. Thank y'all very much for coming on this journey with us. Coming yeah. the whole fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> coming the whole goddamn way. We're here, and, and we did it. And uh, next next uh, episode, we're going to be coming back with a new band. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're getting... Something new. Yep. Something so, new. I, I love Dead Kennedys, but man, this has been uh, quite a few six weeks we got. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're we're moving beyond hardcore. Uh, we're moving into post punk. Uh, we are going to be doing Joy Division. Yep, that is coming mm-hmm. up next. Joy Division's coming up next, and uh, the last band. Uh, we've also decided what that one's going to yep. be as well. We're gonna we're gonna oh, hold off on that. That's a secret. It's a secret. That one's a secret. Ah. Uh, for this se- the last band for this season at least, and then you know we'll see what we do after that. Uh, but we have yeah Joy Division uh, coming next in two weeks. Uh, so yeah, we'll go over to Manchester. Oh, gosh, I can't believe we're almost at the end of, like, the punk season. Yeah. It's so crazy. We've been this, in living in this filth <laughs> and depravity and this uh, music. I love it all. Yeah, but I love it, it all. We're going to have to say goodbye to it yeah, soon. We've been, yeah, I mean, we started working on this in June of uh, 2019. Uh, so what, was it June or was it? It was June, I think. Yeah, we started working on it in June of 2019. And, yeah, we're, we're getting, near, getting near the end of the first season. <laughs> uh, so thanks, everyone, for... Um, 
for uh, coming along with us on this journey. Uh, if you guys want to uh, support us uh, by buying some merch, we've got t-shirts for sale over at lastpodcastmerch.com. They're specifically made uh, to be an awesome fucking t-shirt. Yes. Thanks to everyone who uh, fucking bought them. I saw someone on the street wearing one the other day. It was super fucking cool. I gave them like, hey, hey, how you doing? No way, you really did? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, saw oh, someone I haven't on the seen street. one yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so thanks to everyone who's already bought them. And uh, yeah, we, we hope you, you want to support us yes. in such a way. We appreciate it very, very much. And uh, uh, who's who's our band? Our band this week, oh. Reptilian American. Ooh. Oh, they're fucking great. This this is a solo project uh, from a, a guy that is actually a farmer by day and says that he uh, listens to our show when he's uh, out doing uh, farm work and all that shit. It is a uh, one man punk concept album about Carl Panzram. Uh, we figured we could do something a little socially conscious. It's about prison reform and all that shit, uh, but it's fucking awesome i like uh, it uh, yeah it's it's really cool um yeah and if if you're a band or, or you're a one-man band or you're just a person who who makes music and, and and wants us to play it at the end of the of every episode that we have just send it to no dogs in space at gmail.com and uh or any any notes <laughs> <laughs> any any words of encouragement whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever you want to write whatever you want yeah. yes we really really appreciate it very much of course uh so you can check out this guy at reptilianamerican.bandcamp.com uh go make make sure and uh, support the artists uh, as much. That's the best way to support artists right now um, until we can uh, get everybody back on the road again. Yeah. So thank y'all very much uh, for listening, and uh, we'll talk to y'all in uh, two weeks with Joy Division. See you then. Goodbye. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful, but we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.